Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. This morning, our Bible reading is 1 Samuel 24, an episode in the life of David, a man after God's own heart. We read 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his most holy word. So, your starter for 10, no conferring. Don't panic. The question is an easy one. Trust me, I'm a minister. (laughs) What kind of man was David? He was a man after God's own heart. Thank you, Julie. He was a man after God's own heart. We are told so in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14, where Samuel, telling Saul the kingdom will be taken from him, declares, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That man, of course, was David, a man after God's own heart. But what does that mean? Well, in English, these days, the expression has come to mean someday I really like, or somebody I get on well with, somebody I favor. But in Hebrew, the heart is not so much the center of emotions and feelings. It is the seat of the will and decisions. So a man after God's own heart means someone who will carry out God's plan and purpose. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul interpreted, interpreted it in his sermon to the Pisidians at Antioch. In his sermon, Acts 13 and verse 22, speaking of David, Paul says, God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I told him to do. A man or a woman after God's own heart is someone who will carry out God's plan and purpose, someone who will do everything God wants him or her to do. And that, of course, should be the desire of every man or woman who, as a follower of Jesus, has the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God within them, those for whom Jesus is Lord. For as has been said, he's either Lord of all, or not Lord at all. That does not, of course, mean that such a person will always get it right. The latter part of David's life, the tragic events in his family following on from his adultery with Bathsheba and his murdering her husband Uriah graphically illustrates this. But David is God's man, the one God has chosen, a man who is able to say in faith, The Lord is my shepherd. A man who cries out in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Against you only have I sinned. A man commended for his faith in Hebrews 11. One of the great clouds of witnesses we are told surround us in Hebrews 12 as we are exhorted to fix our eyes on Jesus and run with perseverance the race set out before us. David is a man we are connected with in the family of faith. A man we can learn from. A man after God's own heart. In chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, which I invite you to turn to now, shows us that a man after God's own heart, a man who does everything that God wants him to do, someone who seeks to carry out God's plan and purpose, does not seize the kingship that God has promised him. 
but waits for it to be given to him. And this not in a protected environment. David's not sitting by the pool, casting around for a waiter to bring him a cappuccino or a white wine while he waits for the details of his coronation to arrive by the next post. He's not in a protected environment. He's on the run in the desert with a paranoid King Saul and 3,000 of his crack troops breathing down his neck. They mean business. David's enemies are going for the jugular. David is in real danger. And we find many like him in the pages of the Old Testament. Men and women after God's own heart. The well-known ones, like Abraham and Deborah. The not-so-well-known ones, like Othoniel and Jehoshaphat, the lady who saved Christmas. Check it out in 2 Kings chapter 11. Men and women who sought to be faithful to God's plan and purpose and did so amid trial and temptation, disappointment and danger, hopelessness and heartache, in so doing providing us with encouragement and challenge. Encouragement in demonstrating that living as a man or woman after God's own heart, seeking to do everything God wants us to, is possible, even in the toughest of times. So an encouragement, but also a challenge to us. To us, who in much less pressurized circumstances often don't do all that we could do to further God's plan and purpose. But back to David, the man after God's own heart who waits for God. And this represents a test for him, a test for God's servant, a test at Engedi, on the western side of the Dead Sea, near the crag of the wild goats, in which there is a cave with sheep pens in front. And while Saul is at the front of the cave, answering a call of nature, far back in the cave, David and his men carry on a spirited debate about the will of God for David's life. It's almost as if David's men, rubbing their hands together, start to sing a snippet from that old chorus, this is the day, this is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day, David. This is the day that God has given Saul into your hands. As far as David's men are concerned, a blind man could see God's intent in this event. Look, they say, this is the day the Lord spoke of to you. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Or, if we take the translation that you may have, either in the text or in the margin, they may say, today the Lord is saying, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. But irrespective of whether David's men are quoting a previous word from the Lord, or simply interpreting the present occasion, the inference is the same. God is saying, I am giving you Saul. This is the day. Strike and take the throne. David's men say, you don't have to be clued up to see this. You don't have to have gone to any theological college to understand what God is up to here. Saul's been given to us on a plate. What does David do? 
and respond. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And thereafter, we read, is conscience stricken. In 1 Samuel 15, the tearing of a robe signified the forfeiture of the kingdom for Saul. So by removing a piece from Saul's robe, David is symbolically staking his claim to the kingdom. But as God's anointed, Saul's person was sacrosanct and must not be violated. For anointing was serious. It meant a special separation to God. And to touch God's anointed meant challenging God. It meant a real risk of coming under God's curse. For to do so was tantamount to seeking to remove the Lord from his rightful place. This explains the strength of David's reaction in verse 5 and the knowledge that even this symbolic gesture had gone too far. But try and tell that to David's men. For them, it was an open and shut case. Here was a God-given opportunity for David to rid himself of Saul. It takes a strong rebuke from David to cool their blood. You've perhaps heard the term, I got tore right into him. Perhaps not in the most genteel of company, but you've probably heard it. Meaning a verbal dressing down being directed to someone. The word translated rebuke here could literally be translated, David tore apart his men with his words. Tearing a strip off his men, David does not allow them to attack Saul. And so Saul goes on his way, oblivious of the fact that the one he was intent on hunting down has just saved his life. Let's press the rewind button and go back to the cave before Saul goes on his way. There is David observing the unprotected Saul. The words spoken by his men flow through his mind. I will give your enemy into your hand. Was this providence or temptation? And how to discern the difference? It was a searching test for God's servant, the man after God's own heart. But that he was a man after God's heart is the nub of the matter. David wants to do what God wants. For the man or woman after God's own heart, God's will must be achieved in God's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by a way of which God approves. David's men don't see this. Their eyes are fixed solely on the end, and the end justifies the means. A test for God's servant. Jesus faced the same kind of test. A test recorded for us in all of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew's Gospel at chapter 4 and verse 8 and 9, we read, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. What the devil offered Jesus that day was the will of God for his life. Jesus would be exalted over all. But God's will must come to pass in God's way. Not via any bowing down to Satan, but through the humiliation of the cross. Not my will, but yours, Father, said Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I am ready to take your way, the way of the cross. And this kind of test is not confined to David and Jesus. It comes to most of God's servants, men and women after God's heart. It's the temptation of the shortcut in our Christian walk. We don't want the stress and strain, the keeping on amidst obstacles and difficulties. We don't want the trouble that comes upon us by taking God's way, the way of the cross. Like the driver faced with a congested town centre, we're looking for the bypass that will take us roundabout and ensure trouble-free motoring. But God's way must be achieved by going God's way. And trouble-free Christianity is a contradiction in terms. If we are to follow Jesus, we cannot bypass the way of the cross. That would be to part company with Christ. The test that faces God's servant as it faced David that day is the temptation of the shortcut, which no matter the apparent progress made will take them down a path which God does not want them to take. God's will must be achieved in God's way. What discernment we need in negotiating such tests. No wonder the Apostle Paul prayed this prayer over the Christians at Philippi and left it for us. To these Christians, Paul said, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. We need to pray that we are able to discern what is best, discern what God would have us do to carry out his plan and purpose. We stand to sing, Mission Praise 495, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. Mission Praise 495. So a test for God's servants, and then an appeal to God's justice. When I was wee, I used to go into my granny's lobby in the dark. And when I did that, I felt the hairs in the back of my neck standing up. I think that David's shout, my lord the king, must have had something of the same effect on Saul. Did he instinctively duck, expecting attack? But turning round, he sees David prostrate himself before him, acknowledging Saul's kingship. And David does this before he argues the case for his innocence and enters his plea for God's justice. David rehearses for Saul the ground we've already covered 
the fact of providence. The day you have, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands the voice of opportunism. Some said to kill you. The principle of restraint because Saul is Lord's anointed. And the proof of this, as David lifts up the piece of Saul's robe, how can Saul seek to kill David when David has no intent to harm him? Yet David does not seek his security in any change of heart from Saul or fresh promise from him. Rather, he casts his case upon God. May the Lord judge between you and me is his declaration in verse 12. Here is the secret of David's waiting. He has confidence in God's justice, or more precisely, in the God who will bring justice for him. As verse 12 tells us, David will be avenged, but he will not take vigilante action. David is content to leave matters in God's hands. He will not retaliate. David will await rather than grasp God's gift. He is God's man, a man after God's own heart. He will do what God wants him to do. At this point, things are not going well for David. He's on the run, being chased from pillar to post under stress and strain. Things may not be going well for us either. What do we do? Do we rely on self? Or do we rely on God? Do we take the line of least resistance? Or do we go God's way? That will really depend on our view of God and the degree of confidence we have in him and on the strength of our desire to carry out God's plan and purpose for our life. I'm not saying this is easy. It isn't. Particularly when we find ourselves in situations that stretch our faith, situations affecting our family, our friends, our future. But much of the Bible comes out of such situations in which, as already alluded to, men and women after God's own heart sought to be faithful to God's plan and purpose amidst trial and temptation, amidst difficult situations, situations in which it was difficult to let God have the final say, which is, of course, what David in his appeal to God's justice, did. He let God have the last word. This was an affirmation on David's part that he was God's man, a man after God's heart, ready to do everything God wanted him to, ready to commit himself to God, ready to cast all his cares upon him and vest all his interests in him. Are we similarly ready? ready to let God be God in our lives, ready to, let him, ready to let him have the first word and ready to let him have the last word in all that affects us. We stand again to sing, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart, Mission Praise 51. So an appeal to God's justice, 
and an assurance of God's faithfulness. God's servant David receives an assurance of God's faithfulness, an assurance that waiting on God is not time wasted. An assurance that what God has promised, he will deliver. And this assurance comes from a most unlikely quarter, from Saul himself. As the dialogue continues, Saul admits David has shown him indisputable goodness. He acknowledges in verse 7 that David is in the right and he is in the wrong. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. He also declares that he knows David will be king. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands, are his words in verse 20. And he adds force to this declaration by seeking David's oath that he will not liquidate Saul's household. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe my name from my father's family. That was the usual fate of the defeated in those days. They went to the wall. What does David receive from this interchange? Another reassurance that God's promise of the kingdom will surely come to pass. Once again, he hears that God's word is dependable, that God's promises can be trusted. Are we similarly assured? Once in the primary school where I was chaplain in Edinburgh, I was talking about the promises of God. And I asked the class I was in, what makes you believe a promise? A question to which I thought I received a very perceptive answer of, from one of the pupils, who said, what makes you believe a promise is knowing the person who makes it and that they are able to keep it. Someone may promise something and want with all their heart to keep it, to bring it to pass, but they are unable to do so, unable to do what is required. To keep the promise is beyond them. Not so with God. He is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. He is a God to be trusted, trusted absolutely. But often, God's servants need reassurance of that, particularly when they're up against it. And so in the midst of trial and tribulation, in the midst of temptation to take the shortcut to the throne, these words of reassurance come to David. I know that you surely will be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. It's surely being doubly reassuring that even Saul recognizes David's coming kingship. A kingship from which ultimately would come God's king, his Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who would change hearts. The one the prophets pointed forward to in words like those of Ezekiel 11, verse 17, 
where through Ezekiel, God declares, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. God in Jesus Christ performs heart surgery. He gives us a heart transplant. In the words of Romans 5 and verse 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. If we are in Christ, we have the presence of God by his Holy Spirit in our hearts. We are men and women after God's own heart. Will we be so? Will we be what we are? What are we doing about what we have got within us by the Spirit of God? Are we letting the Spirit out? Do God, do people see God in us? Do they see that we are people, men and women, after God's own heart? Will we have hearts for God? Hot hearts, as one of my Russian friends terms it. Passionate hearts, hearts that are for God and for the place he has put us. Do we have a heart for Uddingston and the people who live here? Do we want to see Uddingston flourish by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name to paraphrase Glasgow's motto? Will we carry out God's plan and purpose for this place? Will we do everything he wants us to do? Will we be men and women after God's own heart? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.